owe them, but very few of us know them. They are the men and women of our military and first responder communities. And these are their stories. American Warrior Radio is on the air. Well, hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to American Warrior Radio. This is your host, Ben Bueller-Garcia. We're coming to you from the Four Patriots studios. At Four Patriots, they promote self-reliance and freedom, and they give you and your family the tools to do so. Visit fourpatriots.com. That's the number, fourpatriots.com. Use the discount code WARRIOR for 10% off your first order. It's no revelation that combat involves fighting, but for a small group of people that we're going to talk about today, they actually had to fight to be able to get into combat, to fight. Nowadays, when we look at a woman and see her in a flight suit, we don't really give much thought to whether she's a pilot or, or plays some other role. But they, the difference is now that being a fighter pilot for a woman is actually an option. It's not always been that way. In fact, the first woman to become a fully qualified in combat aircraft was only 29 years ago. A battle more than half a century long was waged to break down the barriers so that she could do so. Today we'll be talking with Dr. Eileen Borkman. Dr. Borkman is a colonel in the or retired as a colonel in the United States Air Force, where she logged 700 and more hours of flying time as a flight test engineer in 25 different types of military aircraft. Regular listeners might recognize her. We had her on the show two years ago to discuss her book Unforgotten in the Gulf of Tonkin. She's got a new book out that I think you will all really like. It's called Fly Girls Revolt: The Story of the Women Who Kicked Open the Door to Fly in Combat. Eileen, welcome back to American Warrior Radio. Thank you, Ben. Thank you for having me on. Uh, love the book. Uh, love Thank the cover, you. by the way. That the the photo on the cover is that's the first class of of women fighter pilots, as I recall. Or oh, that was actually the first class of women to go through Air Force pilot training. But back in 1977 is when they graduated. So they were not fighter pilots. They they were they were women who went through before the law was changed that allowed women to to fly and fighter and other combat aircraft. Eileen, I, I may be showing my age here, but 1977 really does not seem that long ago to me. I mean, it seems just like yesterday. No, it's the same way to me. I was in college in 1977 when a lot of this movement was starting up, but it doesn't seem that long ago to me either. I came in the Air Force in 1980, and it certainly doesn't seem like 43 years ago. Let's let's go back to the beginning, if you will, uh, which was at least at the beginning where your book starts, and that's in World War II. Now, there were two groups of women flying during World War II, right? And one, and correct me if I'm wrong, but we've got two names, Jacqueline Cochran and Nancy Love, who sort of kicked all this off. Yes. Initially, there were two separate groups. Nancy Love led a group of women who had more experience. They had to have at least 500 hours of flying time uh, before they could become pilots. They didn't need a whole lot of training. The idea was that they were going to ferry aircraft around the country, around the United States. They were going to tow targets and fly maintenance flights and, and things that, that didn't require uh, things that didn't require combat and and they would free up the idea was that they would free up men to then be able to go into the combat roles and so she started the the initial group and then there was a second group that was led by Jacqueline Cochran 
that was for women who had less experience. They still had to be pilots before they were admitted to the program, but but her pilots had less experience. And so they went to a program down in Texas where they went through pretty much a full Army pilot training program, even though they weren't actually in the Army, they were civilians, but they went through this full training program, and then they were qualified to ferry the aircraft to do some of the other things as well. Now, did, did Jack? They, oh. no, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> and I was going to add, then then they merged eventually into a single group, which was known as the WASP, which was mm-hmm. then led by Jacqueline Cochran. The, did, now, did Jacqueline and Nancy have to fight the bureaucracy, the military bureaucracy at that time, or just because of the, I mean, we're talking a huge amount of resources needed for World War II, the, the military leadership recognized that just like Rosie the Riveter, uh, these women had a, a critical role they could play. They did. The, the military did recognize that. It, it did take them a while before they actually formed these groups. The, they didn't actually stand up until 1942, uh, and then they were merged in 1943 and then disbanded in 1944. So it did take a while for them to, to recognize that. It took them uh, – but but – you know, before the war, they had been actually lobbying them already to stand up some kind of a women's ferry, you know, a, a group of women pilots that would provide these ferry services and, and other, uh, you know, other services. But it, it took, I think, until the war actually kicked off and they realized how many pilots they were going to need before they finally, you know, the military bureaucracy finally, you know, get, said, hey, let's go do this. This is a good idea. And they made them civilians just for expediency's sake because, there was already legislation that had passed to get women into the uh, into the military, but not in a flying role. So just in like administrative jobs and and things like that. And so they didn't feel like they at that time could go back to Congress again and say, hey, we need to get some more women in. So they brought them in as civilians. What the intent was, they were going to make them military at some point, but they wound up disbanding before that happened. So if if I enlisted as a, a clerk. Or a nurse, I'm actually in the army, but if I'm flying, right. I'm not. Right. right. Interesting. <laughs> you, know, it seems kind of strange. <laughs> you know, I think one thing I've found in your book, and it come to come to think of it, but my flagship station broadcasts out of Tucson, Arizona, and in looking at some of the history of the community early on in the days of flying, the post office was was looking at new mail routes and using aircraft for mail routes, and there was a big deal going on in Tucson where they they one of the, the uh, post office pilots was flying over and did some some aerobatics over the city of Tucson. Well, that was a woman, and, and back then nobody gave that much thought to it. So it's not like a woman in the cockpit was like a you know somebody landing from Mars at that time. It was just it wasn't formally recognized until we desperately needed them. I would agree with that. There were quite a few women flying, not nearly as many. Uh, as men flying, obviously, but it was I mean, it was still very much a male-dominated field, and it still is today. But uh, but but yes, there were a fair number of women in the country that were flying, and, and some very well-recognized women like Jacqueline Cochran. Mm-hmm. She was a, she had won uh, some races and was uh, very well known. Uh, she made headlines, and and she you know she was like Amelia Earhart. Everybody knew her name. The a lot of your book talks about the distinction between women flying and women flying in combat. And uh, later on the show, we'll get into some of the uh, mental gymnastics that <laughs> some of the people tried to go through to, to justify this. But one thing I've learned, Eileen, is it's a dangerous business even when someone's not shooting at you. 
and the women who are ferrying these planes, they had some casualties. They did. Overall, I, I, can't, I can never remember the exact number, but it was like 38 women died ferrying these aircraft and, and doing training and doing other other things. And so there was only a little bit more than a 1,000 of these women. And so that's almost 4% that got killed doing their job. And I can't think of any other job in the U.S. that was not in combat in the war, that was you know, supporting the war, that had a fatality rate that high. So, yes, they were definitely doing a dangerous job. Back years ago, we interviewed a young lady who was a nurse at the Battle of the Bulge in Bastogne. And when you talk about women not being in combat, well, I mean, that was avoidable. We didn't plan to get surrounded. But nonetheless, that was a woman in combat. I mean, she was on the front lines. In fact, she carried, it's so funny, she said she used to carry a, a brass knuckles in her coat pocket because they were also treating German pr wounded prisoners and she had those there just in case so uh, we've got just about a minute uh, before we need to take a break Eileen the, the, the other challenge here was so those women that were killed ferrying the planes did they receive any benefits at all from they our did government? Not because, yeah, they did not because they were civilians and so they didn't even get their families didn't even get money to pay for them to transport their remains home Typically, what would happen is the other wasps that were there locally would uh, pass a hat to mm -hmm. to get the money in order to send you know, send the woman back to her family, and they they got no they no, they got no survivors benefits because they were civilians. Was that ever fixed? They, well, they did finally give they were finally given veteran status many okay. years after the war. It was in the late seventies, but they that none of that was retroactive. You know, they weren't able to go back and provide any benefits retroactively, but they did get the, the veterans' benefits that allowed them to at least be, say, buried in veteran cemeteries. Ladies and gentlemen, we're talking to Dr. Eileen Bjorkman. We'll be right back. Welcome back to American Warrior Radio, ladies and gentlemen. This is your host, Ben Bueller-Garcia. We're speaking with Dr. Eileen Bjorkman. Dr. Bjorkman spent, uh, flew in 25 different types of military aircraft. She retired as a colonel in the United States Air Force, and she's got a great new book out called Girls' Revolt, the story of the women who kicked open the door to fly in combat. Eileen, we're talking a little bit about the benefits, or I should say the lack of benefits, for some of these female pilots during the World War II era. Moving on, both, as I understand it from your book, both in World War II and Korea, the, they, if they were part of that group that were actually in the military versus civilians flying military aircraft, they got the GI Bill, but they were paid less than the men. And I, so much of your book, I tell you, Eileen, I, I'm glad that it makes me look back and shake my head and say, how was this? How could this have even happened? Because in 2023, we, 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 yeah. Yeah, it's, I know it does seem incredible. Yes, women who got the GI Bill, they did get the GI Bill to pay for their, their school, just like the men did. But if a man was married, he got additional money for his, his wife. But a woman who was married did not get extra money for her husband. So it was, and, and that was the deal for women in general. They did not treat, military women in general, they did not treat their spouses as dependents. 
a man could you know be married to a, a multimillionaire and he would automatically get additional money for being married whereas a woman had to prove that her spouse was totally dependent upon her or more than 50% dependent upon her in order to be able to get the benefits and it was a very high bar and and very few women got benefits for their husbands and the the men didn't get any medical benefits or anything either uh, if they were married to a military woman so. hmm. I, and again it didn't nothing that was not uh fixed that was not actually taken care of all the way I mean, the WASP pilots didn't get veteran benefits until 1977. I don't do math in public, but that's what, 30 years? 30, 30 plus years? 30 something years, right, right. And the, and the benefits for the active duty women to be able to get benefits for their, their husbands, that actually didn't, uh, didn't start until 1973. There was a lawsuit that was passed and they, they won the lawsuit. Eileen, so. if we look at this as a 50 year war, if you will, to allow women to fly in combat, there was a series of skirmishes along the way where there was, you know, sometimes two steps forward, one step back, and and fighting the bureaucracy. There were some allies within the military. There were certainly allies in Congress, but it wasn't it wasn't easy. And one of the I found fascinating because I never thought of it this way. One of the big successes was the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Now a lot of us think about that in terms of outlawing discrimination based upon race. But it also outlawed discrimination based on gender, and that had to have been a, a big thing that was a big door that was kicked in at that point in time. Well, it certainly had an impact overall in the country, maybe less so in the military right away, just because the military, you know, for for military needs, the air, you know the military can do things that you could not get away with in civilian life. They still very much had male jobs and female jobs, you know, well into the, the late 60s and early 70s that you know, that would have been considered illegal in, in the civilian world. So, But it certainly had an impact on the women themselves in saying, hey, you know, there's a law now that says we have more rights and, and we're going to start fighting. And, and I think it was it wasn't just that, but that was certainly one of the things that, that helped women to get the courage, if you will, and to be able to stand to start taking a stand for their rights. You know, we talked about the benefits, but also anybody who knows anything about the military and, and most, not all disciplines, but if you want, let's say if you want to be a pilot in the Air Force, you you need, in order to continue up the promotion ladder, you need to get some combat time. And, and it's almost like that for women who wanted to make a career out of the military, there was a couple rungs missing from the ladder because technically they couldn't fly combat, so therefore they're ability to, to be promoted was restricted. Certainly into the higher ranks. I mean, there are uh, promotion paths uh, in all career fields, and there are promotion paths that get people up into the general officer ranks and you know, admiral ranks uh, in the Navy. But it's, it's easier, certainly, if you are in some sort of combat specialty. I mean, the point of the military is combat, and so if you're in a support field, there are going to be fewer opportunities to get into the into the general ranks to start with and then to get into those very upper rungs where there is definitely a preference for combat specialties and having that experience. Eileen, probably the easiest researched person in your book as far as women flying was yourself. Uh, you, you enlisted in 19... You didn't have to travel very far for that interview, I'm guessing. Um, you enlisted in 1980, but you you... Being a pilot was not an option for you because of your eyesight, correct? That's correct, yeah. But you still wanted to fly. 
I still wanted to fly. I mean, once I got into the Air Force and started going through officer training school, I started to realize that if you're going to be in the Air Force, especially as an officer, you should probably be doing some kind of flying. And I considered trying to become a navigator, but I would have been limited to flying and like cargo, you know, transport aircraft or, or tankers. And, and again, there's nothing wrong with that. Those are, those are great jobs. And, and, uh, you know, I, I'm sure I would have been, enjoyed doing that, but I really wanted to fly in fighter airplanes. And, and so I found a way. They, they, I found, I became a flight test engineer and flight test engineers are allowed to fly pretty much in any aircraft where there's a seat or a back end. And I, because of that, I was able to fly in, in fighters at Edwards Air Force Base because they were considered test airplanes, not wow. combat airplanes. And then were you, when you went to Holland, Holloman, which I, and I, God bless you people in Holland, New Mexico, but I, that I wouldn't want to live there. Uh, but for some people, it's a great. What What were you doing? Were you doing the same thing at Holloman then, as as Edwards, or? Well, that's what I, I actually did that first. Uh, okay. I was at Holloman, and and at Holloman, I was actually only flying in the back of cargo airplanes in C one thirties and C one forty ones to test inertial navigation systems. Uh, the precursor to GPS. There was no GPS in those days, and um, so we would put these navigation systems on pallets, ca- cargo pallets, and fly them around to to test them and see how they did. So I, that was how I got my start as a flight test engineer, and then and then later went to to Edwards. Did you get any resistance from your fellow, the front seater, if you will, the male pilots, or, or were no. you embraced yeah. pretty quickly? I'd say I was embraced pretty quickly um, by the people that I actually flew with. So uh, I never had any anybody, you know, give me any negative feedback or anything that I was actually flying with. Holloman was a fighter base, though. There was actually two fighter wings there uh, in the 1980s. And, and I did occasionally get a little bit of pushback from uh, some of the male pilots on the other side of the base, if you will. So. Hmm, interesting. I tell you, it makes me think of last time I visited Holloman. I don't know if they are still there, but there's a German a squadron that that is as a guest residence on the base and still fly there and and Eileen I can tell you when I first drove by the flight line and I saw those German aircraft with the old Iron Cross symbol still all on them uh, I had a kind of a weird flashback it's like wait a minute that's that's World War Two that we, I thought we beat them but uh, apparently there's a, a <laughs> yeah, great <laughs> great relationship there and, and by the way folks if you do get there uh, they've got just some amazing museums there at home and about the uh, test flights and and uh, uh, the space campaign and stuff. It's really, really worth a visit. I think when we come back, I want to talk a little bit more about your career and then some more of those skirmishes that I mentioned before and uh, talk about, you know, it sounds like you didn't have a real issue. I, I, well, there's one story you tell about being an intern where this came up and uh, certainly some of the other, wasn't just doors being kicked in, but, but wet blankets being thrown on the idea of women flying in combat. Ladies and gentlemen, this is your host, Ben Bueller-Garcia. Don't forget, you can find more than 500 podcasts of American Warrior Radio. Visit AmericanWarriorRadio.com. You can also find us on your favorite streaming platform, uh, Apple, Google, iTunes, whatever it might be. Please, please share these stories so other people hear them as well. We'll be right back. Welcome back to American Warrior Radio, ladies and gentlemen. This is your host, Ben Bueller-Garcia. We're broadcasting from the Four Patriots studio. At Four Patriots, they promote freedom and self-reliance and provide you and your family the tools to do so. 
Visit 4Patriots.com. That's the number 4Patriots.com. And don't forget to use the code WARRIOR for a 10% discount off your first order. We're speaking with Dr. Eileen Bjorkman, who has got a great new book out called Girls Revolt, the story of the women who kicked open the door to fly in combat. Eileen, I'd like to highlight, um, you know, kind of get into this, really just this dumb rule that was hard to enforce. But before you, and I've told the story, we had um, Kim Campbell, uh, call sign killer chick, who I don't know if you've heard of, but just an amazing story. She had her airplane pretty much almost shot out from under her over Baghdad, lost all hydraulics, but was able to go to a manual, I think it's called manual revertment, and was able to fly the, the plane back and safely land it without hydraulics or brakes and, and was awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross. When she was coming up in high school, she took a, uh, a shop class. And one of the, her projects, she made a, a pencil box for her father. Uh, you younger people look up what a pencil is. And um, before she finished it, she took it to the shop teacher, and, and his response, Eileen, was, well, that's good enough for a girl, I suppose. And, again, you hear those sorts of stories, but Eileen had a good enough or not good enough as a girl story when you were doing a, I think it was an internship at Boeing? Yes, that was before I joined the military. Mm-hmm. So I was an intern at Boeing one summer. Um, I went to the University of Washington, so it was kind of a easy to get an intern position with Boeing and I was working in the flight test department and and there were quite a few of us there interns in the flight test department and part of the part of the fun of being in the flight test department was that we would get to go on some some test flights and and so one day I was supposed to go and there was it was actually my first time going and there were a bunch of guys going as well so we all go out to the airplane I think it was a 727 and we we get on and we go sit down and and all of a sudden one of the pilots comes back to me and says you need to get off and I said uh why and he said well I took my I took my secretary up last week and I got in a lot of trouble for it and I said I'm not a secretary I'm an intern and he said doesn't matter. I can't take the chance. And he booted me off. And none of the men said anything. None of them said, hey, she's one of us. And so I, you know, I didn't know what to do. I couldn't, obviously couldn't stand there and hold up the flight. So I went back inside and told my uh, supervisor, who happened to be one of the first women promoted into a significant position, supervisor position there at Boeing. And she was furious. And she she took care of it. I don't know exactly what was said, but I wound up going on you know another another few flights after that. And and uh, the guy never apologized to me though. I, mm. I thought that was interesting. So. Well, there there were wingmen, there were males who were advocates and and stood up. And now after you joined the military, there was another situation where the, the I think it was the commander of the unit was just just had a tendency to be inappropriate, and it put you in a difficult position because. I mean, you obviously you didn't appreciate that, but you didn't know if you actually complained, what if anybody would even listen. But I, eventually, as I recall from the book, Eileen, a couple of the your male counterparts pretty much helped put that to an end. Yes, they did. So yeah, it wasn't a commander; he was my my uh, immediate supervisor, actually. And and yes, one of the one of the men said made a remark one day that embarrassed the guy, and he finally stopped bothering me after that. So, so yes, the men were definitely. They were on my side, and I had talked with them about it. So I think they were just looking for an opening to be able to to help me out, and they did. I, I tell you, in the most recent wars, we've learned just by the nature of the the type of combat that we were in and, and the areas where we and there were there really was no longer very uh, 
clear front lines, uh, you know, and therefore there was not a lot of you know rear echelon. But so this idea, this dumb concept that women were serving but they couldn't quote unquote be in combat. You know, one of the dumbest rules, particularly because it's so hard to enforce. And in your book, you talk about uh, first flight nurse James Lombardi, who in Vietnam they were loading, literally helping to load patients onto these aircraft under fire, under enemy fire. And she eventually was awarded the Bronze Star. But guess what? Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. She wasn't in combat, even though she's getting <laughs> shot at. Right, right. And and there's a, a saying that women would were saying back in the 70s and 80s that they were flying into hospital areas many times, and technically they weren't in combat, and they started to say, you're, you know you're in a combat airplane if you can shoot back, because the airplanes they had obviously had no no, no defensive systems on them. So, you know, But there were some, and I don't want to use a phrase they got away with it, but there were some women who just, I don't, it wasn't coincidence, but they got away with it, if you will. And, and uh, tell us about Margie Clark. Yeah, so she flew, um, first she flew uh, C-141 from uh, from um, Charleston Air Force Base into Lebanon after the bombing of the barracks there in 1983. And it was very much a, a hostile area. And they flew first to Germany and picked up flak jackets and, and uh, pistols, you know, you know small uh, small handguns that they were taking with them into the area. So it's like, okay, you're not in combat, but we're going to give you all this stuff because it's dangerous. And so they did that. And then she came back and just a couple days later, she was still on the schedule and Grenada kicked off and the invasion of Grenada. And so she transported troops and supplies down there, again, flying into a hostile area. And the thing I thought was interesting about that too, is that there were women on the west coast, uh, Norton Air Force Base, and their commanders pulled them off the schedule and uh, did not allow them to fly into Grenada, which was unfair to both the women and the men that had to come in and replace them because these were men who perhaps were on their day off and, and they were called in to, to fly because they had to replace a woman, not because somebody got sick or broke their mm-hmm. leg or something, but because they had to replace a woman. So it wasn't really fair to anybody. We just about a couple minutes left, but to real quickly tell us that one of my favorite parts of your book talked about the Libyan bombing campaign and the women involved in that. Just, I mean, a, a tremendous logistical fleet because France would not let us fly our aircraft over their airspace, so they had we had to go all the way around. Um, and just an amazing story there. Yes, so because of that, they had to have a lot of tanker support, and where are all the women? They're flying tankers, and so there were seven women actually involved in the mission. One of them was the one of the major planners on it, and then she also flew on the mission, and so, uh, again, you know, talking about proponents for, for women, when the whole thing kicked off, the, the male colonel who was in charge of the, the wing and the planning and everything, he explicitly said, women are, co- are going on this mission. We're not disrupting the schedule. If they're scheduled to fly, they're going. And so you know, from, from the beginning, he made it very clear that the women were part of the team and they were going no matter what. And, and again, you talk, well, you're not going into combat, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, but they were all told to sterilize their uniforms. Uh, right, right. Yeah, they were, not, <laughs> not not sterilized with Clorox, but basically no patches, no nameplates, uh, you know, nothing that could identify you if you're shot down and captured. Right, right. They were all they were all treated just like they were going into combat. 
And and for years, you know, women had always, even though they weren't going into combat, the Air Force policy, everybody went through survival school. And so they were all going through the survival school and the POW camp and everything, even though they're not going into combat. Well, and you're doing your research, Eileen, were there one or two male uh, officers or, or male leadership that stood out as far as just being really staunch advocates for finally getting this these rules changed? There were, let's see, finally getting the rules changed. Um, or, or just like like the the fellow you just talked about, where it's like, no, I I need, oh, I right, can't complete right. my mission without my women pilots. So forget about it. I'm doing it. Right, right. So yes, and yeah. So I, I wouldn't say it was so much staunch advocates, but yes, men just saying, hey, I I need these women. That happened in Desert Storm as well. There were there were some questions about should women be going or not, and and most of the commanders just said they are going i i need them to do the job okay well yeah i'm glad you cited that just the the, the statistics in your book uh 30, women deployed during desert shield and desert storm 13 were killed 21 wounded and two prisoners of war ladies and gentlemen this is your host ben Bueller garcia we're talking with dr eileen bjorkman her book is called girls revolt the story of the women who kicked open the door to flying combat the final door Correct me when we come back, Eileen, if I'm not wrong, was finally kicked in on April 28, 1993, and we'll talk about those those first three. Again, this is your host, Ben Bueller Garcia. Visit AmericanWarriorRadio.com for more podcasts. We'll be right back. Welcome back to America Warrior Radio, ladies and gentlemen. This is your host, Ben Bueller-Garcia. We're speaking with Dr. Eileen Bjorkman. Uh, Dr. Bjorkman retired as a colonel in the United States Air Force. She was a flight test engineer and logged more than 700 hours of flight time in 25 different types of military aircraft. She's got a great book out. I know you'll enjoy it. I did. It's called Girls Revolt, the Story of the Women Who Kicked Open the Door to Fly in Combat. Uh, Eileen, seems like a lot of stuff happened in 1977, and that was President Carter, correct? That's correct. That was his administration, yeah. Do you think, was he, I mean, was he an advocate, or it was just a matter of a coincidental time that he happened to be in the White House at the time? Oh, he was definitely an advocate for opening more roles for women, and that you know trickled down into the military as well. I, I tell you, we, we joked about, well, not really joked about, but just some of these dumb rules and how hard they were to enforce. There's another example in your book of, of uh, Kathy, I think it's Cosand or Cosand, who was flying cargo airplanes into Zaire, a hot zone, and they actually, the Air Force considered not, everybody else who flew those missions were awarded air medals, but the Air Force considered not giving her the medal she earned because she wasn't supposed to be there. I mean, that's not right. very equitable, is it? <laughs> no, but she, she did eventually get the, the air medal, and she was, in fact, the first woman military pilot to be awarded an air medal. So. I, I tell you, one of the things that just made me grit my teeth in reading your book is the plethora of examples where the women were graduating at the top of their their class but men who graduated behind them were actually getting the the flight slots and it it just makes me think about Eileen you know if I'm going into surgery I want the surgeon who graduated at the top of the class I don't care if they're female male green purple I don't care as long as they're good at what they do but we weren't quite there yet for a while. 
Yeah, that was one of the biggest reasons that women were advocating flying combat is because, like you said, they were often uh, graduating at the top of their class or certainly high enough in their class that they were qualified to fly a fighter or another kind of combat aircraft, and yet they were, you know, having to go off and and fly tankers or transport aircraft. Again, nothing wrong with those airplanes, but you want your best people flying your combat aircraft. And so women who were fully qualified and wanted to fly those airplanes were instead sent to fly other airplanes, and a less qualified male was getting into the cockpit of one of those combat airplanes. And so it wasn't really fair to commanders either. Well, they weren't necessarily getting the best people. Well, sure, and, and, the, and the military is supposed to be a meritocracy. You always want right. the best people being promoted so eventually they can train and, and, and mentor those coming coming behind them. So as I mentioned, the, the first, or you mentioned, the first 10 women to graduate Air Force pilot training were in 1979, including a class member with the coolest name ever, Kathy Rambo. Um, but but it wasn't until 1993 that the first three women were the first to be appointed to fly combat aircraft. Now, Eileen, when you graduate at the top of your class or in the top five or whatever it is, do you get to your choice of aircraft generally? Yeah. Yes, that's generally the way it works. Is they the higher the higher up you are, the the more likely you are to get the airplane you want. Now it's also based on what airplanes are available. So you you, know, you might want an F fifteen, but if there's no F 15s available, you're not going to get one. But you will get an airplane that's very close to what you wanted uh, if it's not available. But that's that's the rule that you you get the. You get the airplane. You you get first pick at what's available. Okay. So those first three were Captain Sharon Presler, Captain Martha McSally, uh, who also was the first woman to to fly in combat, and Lieutenant Jeannie Flynn. And are they? Did their? How did their careers? I mean, we know how um, Martha McSally ended up uh, being elected to Congress eventually, and the other two women, their careers progressed pretty well after that, or were there still some bumps in the road? I think they progressed pretty well. So they've, you know, got their own stories to tell. And I don't really tell their stories in the book. It kind of ends with them going off to be fighter pilots. But like Jeannie Flynn, who's now Jeannie Levitt, she progressed through a normal fighter pilot career. She was the first woman to command a fighter squadron. And then she also is now a two-star general. And she's the chief of safety and she's uh, for the Air Force, and she's still in the Air Force. Sharon Presler had a again a, a normal career and I believe she retired as a colonel and um and so yeah so they they had pretty normal careers after that so of the pioneers that you mentioned in your book were any of them still around to actually witness that wonderful day on April 28, 1993 where they finally won won the war Oh yes yes there were quite a few women that were still on active duty um and you know, that had been in that original class from, it was actually 1977 when they, that first class graduated. You had Navy women who had gotten their wings in 1974 who were still around and were, of course, very happy to, to see that happen. And then you had many of the WASP were still alive as well. So I think everybody was very thrilled when that finally happened. You know, that, that's another thing that jumped out of it, just dumb, dumb, dumb. I mean, you're, you're a Navy, a female Navy pilot, okay, but you're not allowed to be on ships. Well, <laughs> if you're flying in the Navy, at some point you're going to kind of sort of want to land on a ship. I mean, I mean, I know there are some land-based aircraft, but I just one story I've got to share with you, Eileen, that that really I thought was wonderful. Uh, coming back to the good enough for a girl pencil box story, I was at a change of command for a rescue squadron, and they flew uh, C-130s, 
and the commander of the squadron were at the reception there after the the change of command. The commander introduced me to a, a young lady at the time was a captain. Her name was Christy Weiss, and he said, you know, she's a really special pilot. Well, Ben being Ben, I said, oh, you know, I got to put my hands on my hips and say, what makes you so special? Well, she hitches up the the right leg of her flight suit, and she's got a titanium leg. And she had lost that leg in a boating accident, but she was not going to let that keep her out of flying C-130s, which, I mean, you've been in those big aircraft before. That that takes some, some leg strength to fly those planes. And just what a, what a perfect example of you can't be stopped. And, and I'm so glad that we have women like her uh, serving us today. Yeah, and she's a special ops pilot is my understanding. Correct, so. correct. Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. just, a, just a real... Great story. So Eileen, uh, we had another Eileen on, Eileen Collins, a couple of months ago. She was the first woman to pilot and command a space shuttle. And one of the questions I asked her is, do you ever get tired of, or shouldn't we all get tired of saying the first woman to, you know, insert phrase here? And shouldn't we be looking at a time, Eileen, where that no longer matters? Yes, I would hope so. And I would have hoped we would have been there by now, but unfortunately we're not. But yes, I would very much like to be at a point where we no longer are saying the first woman to do something, that it's just a normal part of life when a woman goes off and does something. Well, if I'm not mistaken, there's a woman on the crew that's slated to return to the moon, and I don't think we can get away with not saying the first Well, maybe we should. <laughs> so we should, we should tell them you cannot say she's the first woman to land on the moon. <laughs> I'm not sure we can do that, though, because it was, you know, we we have only had men on the moon till now. So okay. right. that, that one we probably are going to have to say, I think. <laughs> Fair enough. Really quick, Eileen, we've got about two minutes left. Something that has, has always bugged me, speaking of the moon, we've got the technology to put people on the moon, male and female. To And one thing throughout your book was the the equipment. And, you know, the, the, the uniforms that they gave the WASP were just bagging didn't quite fit the gloves are too big for their hands and we still haven't quite figured out how women in flight suits and gloves today in 2023 are able to relieve themselves in flight i mean come on seriously is that can you can you get on that and get someone to fix that for us Yeah, well, I think they are starting. I've seen some things lately where I think they are finally starting to come up with some things that that work. And um, so hopefully, I am hopeful for the future. But but yes, I mean, this was a problem even back in the 1940s. They were looking at, you know, possibilities then and, and off and on over the years, I've seen some things, but I just don't think they ever, you know, it, it wasn't as big, it wasn't a serious enough problem, I think they thought. Uh, to put money against it until recently they finally realized that we actually have quite a few women flying fighters out there and they fly on long flights and they shouldn't have to dehydrate themselves in order to get through those flights. Well, yeah, I've actually talked to a a backseater. She's a a Navy and was flying F-18s in combat and she actually had to to put on a diaper. And that's just, yes. that's unconscionable to me. And, and anyway, don't get me started. So hopefully yeah. we, can, we can get that solved pretty quickly. Well, I want someone focused on the enemy, not on their bladder. Right, right. Eileen, what a uh, great book. I encourage people to read it. It's called Girls Revolt, the story of the women who kicked open the door to fly in combat. Have you got anything else coming down the line for us? Um, as far as books, I have not got any, I have not decided yet what my next book is going okay. to be. So, Fair yeah. enough. Well, keep an eye on it. And Eileen, what's your website? Where can people find more about you? 
It's just my name, Eileen Bjorkman. Dot com. Eileen Bjorkman, all one word, dot com. Okay, Eileen, thank you so much for spending time with our listeners today. Thank you so much for having me on, Ben. Ladies and gentlemen, as always, until next time, all policies and procedures are remain in place. Take care. You've been listening to American Warrior Radio. Archived episodes may be found at AmericanWarriorRadio.com or your favorite podcast platform.